At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our message series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food, we'll unpack what Jesus has to teach us from the time He spent around the table. Here, in the ordinary, everyday sharing of a meal, we'll discover who Jesus came for, what it takes to be with Him, and how you and I can be changed by His greatness and grace. Well, I got some really good news today. The tomb is still empty. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And because he lives, we live. How many praise God that the gospel is true, that the resurrection is true, and that Jesus is alive. I am so excited this morning to be able to worship with you, to be reminded once again of the day that changed everything, that the resurrection is the apex of human history, that everything, including time itself, wraps itself around Jesus, that to put our faith and trust in him means to have life, to receive grace, the mercy that our soul so desperately needs. And if today you're here, not because you're perfect, but because you're human enough to admit that you need a savior, then you're in the right place because this is the place where the love of God is found and experienced. Amen. I'm here glad to be in the house of the Lord again today. Amen. Listen, I want us to pray, but before we do that, can we give this wonderful worship team a great, great big hand. Such an awesome job they do in serving us week after week. I want to add my welcome to that of Pastor EJ's to just say we are so glad you're here and that you are welcomed here. No matter where you find yourself in your journey in life, you are welcome here. And that's not just for those in the room, but even those who are watching us via our live streaming as well. You know, we are a family. That's our top value. We have a, a lot of values here, but our top value is that we are a family because of Jesus. From many different places and journeys in life, God has brought us together by his grace and through his mercy. And we love one another deeply. And we we live to know him and to make him known. As a family, we get a chance to journey with one another, not only through the mountaintop moments of life, the high points, but even in the valleys. Today, I would ask you to pray with me. As I pray for those who find themselves here this morning, maybe going through a difficult season of life, I want you to know that God sees you. I've been a Christian for many years, and I'm still amazed that in a room full of hundreds of people, that God sees you you. And I want to pray for us today that God's grace would be experienced by all. And also, if you're a part of our church family, I would ask that you would also join me in a very special prayer for a very beloved member of our staff, Dr. John Jelenic. He is uh, one of the executive pastors here. Earlier this week, Dr. John uh, was uh, diagnosed with a brain tumor. And uh, it was a shock and a surprise to us, but certainly not a surprise to God. Throughout this week, we have seen the grace of God in so many ways. Tomorrow, he is um, having surgery in the morning. The doctors are optimistic that they can fully remove it. How many thank God that we live in a day and age where medical technology is what it is? There's so many advancements in medicine. But can you join me in prayer today? And if you could remember to pray for Pastor John, that would be great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have not gathered here today in vain, 
that our worship is not offered to a mere man or some moral teacher, some great philosopher, but there is a king. And not only are you seated among your people, but you are risen and alive. And our hope is fully in you. And so we simply ask that you would just comfort every heart, that you would do what only you can do, save, heal, set free, encourage. And Lord, we thank you that you see not only us, but you see our children, you see our grandchildren as well. So Lord, we pray that you would bless them. Turn the story of our families from brokenness to flourishing. Lord, we also pray for Pastor John to bless him in a mighty way, superintend the surgery and add to his testimony. It's in Jesus' mighty, matchless and magnificent name we pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. You can be seated in the presence of the Lord. Well, it is so exciting to be here with you this Sunday. Easter is a little bit different than any other day. The music is a little bit more excellent. The sun shines a little bit brighter, even on a 29-degree day. Spring is around the corner. Everybody's a little bit more excited, and you may ask why. Why is Easter so different? Well, it's because we get a chance to proclaim the resurrection, the resurrection that gives us hope that death doesn't have the final story, that there is something more ahead for us, that our brokenness and our pain is not the final chapter, but because he is risen, there is hope on the horizon. But for some, in particular those of you who maybe uh, church is something that's not a normal part of your weekly schedule, uh, coming to church on Easter might feel like a sales pitch. But I want to calm your fears up front. Today is not going to be a sales pitch. As a matter of fact, I hate sales pitches. How many hate those? right? The resurrection is not a sales pitch. I, I hate when people put high-pressure tactics on me to try to convince me to uh, buy something that I don't feel that I need. If you've ever been a part of a timeshare meeting, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It all sounds great on the front end, doesn't it? Go to this picturesque destination for three days and two nights, and all you have to do is sit through this little meeting. And while you're sitting through that little meeting, you feel like a prisoner wondering why in the world did I say yes to this? Well, I I want you to know that that's not the hope today. Now, by saying that I don't like sales pitches, though, I'm not saying that I dislike all sales professionals. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of great people in sales, and the ones that I like and that I appreciate the most are the ones who simply see their jobs as servicing people by providing them with the best information possible so that they can make the best decision possible. And that's what I want to do today. I want to provide you with the best information I can about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't want to simply tell you that it's true. I want you to look with me and investigate these things by looking at a historical account found in the Gospel of Luke. Can you turn there with me, Luke chapter 24? And we're going to read about this meal 
this meal, so to say, that Jesus had with his disciples after his resurrection and how through many proofs he confirmed that he was alive, that he was risen from the grave, that he had conquered death and hell, sin and Satan, just like he said he would. Now, there's a couple of things you need to know, though, as we get ready to look at Luke's gospel. And we're going to look in particular at verses 36 through 49. The first thing you need to know is that Luke is a historian of the highest rank. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Luke tells us the meticulous approach that he took to putting together what we call this gospel, or what he would have called simply an account. He says that he went about interviewing firsthand eyewitnesses so that he might comprise or compile an orderly account so that we might be confident and certain of the things we believe. Today, I want you to have certainty that what Luke presents to us today is not mere feeling or emotion, but well-researched historical fact. I think there's three things we discover when we look at Luke's gospel. In verse 36, we'll start. The first thing we discover is that the resurrection is true. You know, I often say this about the music that we sing, that the best part about it is not the vocalists, as great as they are. It's not the instrumentalists, as masterful as they play their instruments. That's not the best part. The harmony isn't the best part. The best part of all of it is that it is absolutely true. Praise God. Well, in verse number 36, we read, after the resurrection, what happened is Jesus comes now to visit his most intimate friends. After showing himself to others, Paul saying that he showed himself to well over 500 after his resurrection, we see this intimate moment. And as they, referring to his disciples, were talking about these things, referring to his death that had just happened a couple of days prior, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be, be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit or what we would call a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do you doubt arise? Or why does, I'm sorry, and why do doubts rather arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. You know what I love about the way Luke writes this account is that he does not try to write a hero's fable. This is no mythology, some story that happened long, long ago in a land far, far away. Luke includes all of the inconvenient details. If you were simply trying to write some make-believe persuasive piece, surely the disciples would have been cast in the best of lights. But what the gospel of Luke does over and again, it shows us their humanity. It puts it on full display and it even includes their disbelief. 
that these, Jesus' intimate friends, those who have walked most closely with him during his earthly ministry, even after hearing him teach about his death, about his sufferings, and about his resurrection, still struggle with belief. Friends, if you are here today and you are struggling with believing the resurrection, don't feel like that's a minority opinion only. Don't feel like somehow you're in a small class of people. Even these early men and women struggle with believing that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. But here's the question we must ask ourselves. What happened in their lives to take them literally overnight from disbelieving to not only believing but proclaiming even at the risk of their own lives? The Bible says that when Jesus rose from the dead, there were a group of women that went to visit him. Pastor EJ read that as we opened our service this morning. And when they came back to tell the apostles, the first proclaimers, these these women, to tell the apostles that Jesus had risen, just as he said, in verse number 11, we hear their response. But these words seemed to them as idle tale, and they did not believe them. Again, the disbelief is on full display, and maybe the resurrection has felt that way to you, like an idle tale, like a make-believe, like, again, a fable. Verse number 12 tells us something awesome. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. You know what's amazing about verse number 12? is that in spite of the disbelief, they did not remain in their disbelief. They didn't just sit there in their disbelief, but they went and investigated themselves. My friends, I just want to encourage you, when it comes to Jesus and the resurrection, don't just believe some third-hand account about him. Don't believe somebody else's opinion. Please don't fall for mean theology or some post that someone put up on Twitter or Facebook. Jesus is far too important. Your future is far too important for you to just trust a secondhand account. I invite you, the gospel invites you, Jesus invites you to investigate these things for yourself by looking into the word of God. Why? Because if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then none of this is important. But if Jesus has raised from the dead, just as he said, then this is of ultimate importance. You know what's amazing to me in all of this? Is that nowhere is it mentioned how they felt about the resurrection. Their emotions around the resurrection. Isn't that interesting how facts seem to work? Facts care less about our emotions. Now, this is important for us to remember because in 2016, Oxford Dictionaries, as they do every year, released their word of the year. And their word of the year in 2016 was post-truth, that we have become a post-truth culture, a post-truth type of people. What does it mean to live in a post-truth culture, a society? It means that for us, for many of us, truth is no longer based off of facts, But truth is simply based off of how we feel about a matter. That if we like it, then it's true. If we don't like who's saying it or what's being said, then we deem it to be false. But I got a news alert for you that's going to burst your bubble. Facts don't work that way. Do you know that gravity could care less whether you liked it or not? (laughs) You realize that? That facts don't care how you feel about them. 
So for you to say to me, well, I disbelieve the, the Bible or the gospel because there's certain parts of it I don't like doesn't change the resurrection. You see, if the resurrection is true, all of the little parts of scripture that you struggle with, the ethical commands or, or some of the inconvenient facts about it become merely a footnote to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The very fact that it is confirmed by history, by many eyewitnesses, by historical account, tells me that the resurrection becomes the penultimate moment of human history to which every other emotion must succumb. So the Bible says that they were talking in this room. Can you imagine being in a locked house? The door would have been locked because they would have been hunted men as followers of him. And they're talking about this Jesus. And the next thing you know, he shows up in the room. That's an amazing thing. But it's a reminder that Jesus is not hindered by locked doors. And let me just say as an aside, nor is he hindered by locked hearts. There are many of you that may be here today that has a locked heart. He knows how to penetrate not only locked doors, but how to penetrate locked hearts. I praise God that he is not just present in cathedrals and church buildings, but how many thank God that he will find us, that he will find us when we are far from him. He will find us when we are in our sins. He will find us when we are lost and in our lowest place. Does anyone have a testimony of his grace finding you when you were Weren't even looking for him. And the good news is, is that as a parent, I am also confident that just as his mercy and grace found me, that his mercy and grace can find my children as well. And there are many grandparents in here, and I want to reassure you that locked doors and locked hearts doesn't stop a resurrected Savior that he's able to break through those things and show himself to be real. And they were confused by it. And you know what our minds do when something happens that doesn't compute. We have to rationalize it. So they made up a theory on the spot. And what was the theory? Okay, here's what's going on. We're seeing a ghost. Can't be a hallucination because there's no such thing as a group hallucination. You and I don't have the same bad dreams in mass. So the fact of the matter is, is that they, they said the only logical thing here must be that he's a ghost. Jesus, knowing this, shows them his hands and his feet, his scars. His resurrected body still carries the scars. Here's the things, friend. We can never separate Resurrection Sunday from Crucifixion Friday. How dare we come into a building like this and celebrate the benefits without first asking the cost? Why did he have to die in the first place? That must be settled in my heart and in yours for us to receive the Savior. He died for our sins. It's because by nature, I'm a rule breaker. I mess up so often. You know, earlier this week, I got an 11-year-old son who uh, made a mistake. He had done something he shouldn't have done. And you know, it's easy as a parent to forget when you were a kid. How many parents feel like you were born grown? <laughs> but you weren't. And so I was talking to my wife about how, how do we process this? How should we respond? And the Lord reminded me of a time when I blew it just as bad, if not worse. And my heart began to change 
as I sat across from my son, not to punish him, but to help him to grow through this moment and to say to him, you may not believe it, but dad blew it too. You see, the one thing that is universally true about all of us, in a generation that is looking and thirsty for equality, here's what the Bible says about where we are all equal. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we don't show up in this moment with our resumes because our resumes are all blemished. But we show up with our humility, recognizing we need a savior. That's what his scars were for. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brings us peace was placed upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. There is no healing outside of Jesus. There is no hope outside of Jesus, not only in this life, but in the life to come. He is the hope of our salvation. But they still disbelieved even after seeing the, the scars. And so then he asked them for food. And he did not ask them because he was hungry. He asked them because they were hungry. He didn't ask them for the fish because of any deficiency in him, because there is no deficiency in God. There is no deficiency in the Savior. But their souls were hungry for truth. Their souls were hungry for something to believe in in a world that offers little hope. Their souls were hungry for hope in the midst of their despair. After thinking they had lost their hero, he confirms for them by eating fish that he is bodily and physically resurrected. This is no metaphor or allegory or make-believe story. This is history, my friends. We can believe it. Well, the story doesn't stop there. It goes on to tell us something powerful, and that is that he taught them in advance that this moment was going to happen. Look at verses 44 and 45. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I wish we had a few more hours together to just kind of unpack these simple two verses, but what he does here is absolutely incredible. He, in just two short verses, confirms the veracity of the scriptures, that the word of God is true. Now, how do we know that the word of God is true, that this is not just uh, a great literature, that this isn't great poetic uh, writings, that this, this book isn't uh, just a great moral book? How do we know that this is divine? Well, we know it's divine because over and again, it predicts and then comes to pass. Jesus, just in his birth, fulfilled 44 prophecies, hundreds of years prior to Men like Isaiah and others predicted where he would be born and to what situation he would be born to, and also predicted what is unpredictable, that it would be a virgin birth. You don't just pull that out of a hat. That was true. And over again, the Bible confirms it through prediction and fulfillment, prophecy and fulfillment. So these were things that were spoken of, his death, burial, and resurrection by Moses, by the prophets, by the Psalms. 
Now, this is just a simple way of summarizing that all Scripture centers on Jesus. If you're looking for the interpretive key to all of Scripture, it is not you, it is not me, it is not our wants or needs, it is Jesus. When you understand that Jesus is the master key for understanding Scripture, then it all makes sense. When you understand that His resurrection is what unlocks Scripture, then it all makes sense. You see Him now in every moment of it. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like uh, when you see a movie that has a plot twist at the end, you can only see that movie twice. The first time you see it, you're surprised by the plot twist, but the second time you see it, you see the plot twist and its implications in every aspect of the movie throughout because you know that it's coming. The resurrection was a great, masterful plot twist. No one saw it coming. But now that we know the resurrection has come, you see Jesus from Genesis to Revelation to our moment right now. All of Scripture speaks to him and is centered upon him. He is the resurrection and the life. But the other thing that this shows me is that God does not expect our hearts to be changed by mere information. Again, I could stand here all I want and tell you it's true, it's true, it's true. But notice what it says in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That tells me that our intellect matters to God, but that it takes more than our intellect to come to faith in in Christ. That he, by the working of his spirit, has to draw us and has to open our hearts and minds to this truth. No preacher, no matter how eloquent can do it, no no singers, no matter how gifted can do it, we cannot persuade you. It has to be the spirit of God drawing you. But I am convinced the spirit of God has been drawing you. The fact that you're here today tells me that the Spirit of God has been drawing you. Some of you in your own hearts have already been wrestling. You know what it's like to be up at night thinking to yourself about your life decisions. How did I get here? Coming to the end of yourself, recognizing that you cannot run your life this way anymore. If that's you, don't deny that. Don't suppress that. Know that it's the Spirit of God drawing you. Even your curiosity about Jesus is placed there by a God who is wooing you unto himself. It wasn't what you ate last night. And you're not just here because a friend or a family member was so persuasive to get you here. They've tried before. It didn't work. The fact that you are here today is because God, by his spirit and because of his love, is drawing you to himself because he loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And why did he have to die? Because we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. If we had a thousand lives, we could not fix the gulf that was between us and God. We needed a savior. He came and he died on our behalf. And once the penalty is paid, it is finished. And the only price of admission into salvation is faith in the son of God. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to earn your way to heaven. All other world religions have this meritorious based approach to God that somehow through works of the flesh that we can earn our way to God. But deep in our hearts, there's a gnawing reality that we know we cannot. 
We're not good enough. We're not faithful enough. The covenants are broken, not because of God's unfaithfulness, but because of ours. We are weak. We are prone to wander. That's the human reality. That is why the world is in the condition that it is. But salvation has come because Christ has come. And when you are humble enough to simply say, God, I need you. I need a savior. He is gracious enough to answer that prayer and to save your soul. Well, there's a final point here that Luke wants to make before he wraps up this account. Verses 46 through 49 remind us that the resurrection must be told. We cannot be silent. And it says in verse 46, and said to them, thus it is written that that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again from the, uh, arise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Notice that he did not want the grace of his resurrection to simply be in their heads, but he wants it to move from their heads to their hearts and their hands. And so it is for us. He wants us to be captivated by him that the centerpiece of our lives would no longer be our selfish pursuits, that the centerpiece of our lives would no longer be empty possessions that are here today and rust out or are gone tomorrow, that the centerpiece of our lives would be him, the one who loved us enough to lay down his life for us. No one has loved us like that, but he loves you that much. And so he comes and he saves them. And not only does he do that, but he commissions them. And there's a lot of young people that are here. And there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to say all, mature people that are here. But wherever you are in your stage of life, maybe you're searching for purpose. The purpose for every human being is that we were wired for worship. We were created to proclaim the love of Jesus, to know him and to make him known. And today I want to invite you to do that. Today I want to invite you to put your faith in Jesus. You have to make a decision about this Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Pause for a moment and just search your heart. Can you do that? Can we just have a moment of silence around the room? Can we bow our heads and just search our hearts for a moment and ask yourself, do I need a savior? Is Jesus calling me to himself? This is no sales pitch. But if this is true, then that means that today must be the day of your decisions. So on the screens, there'll be that number again that we put up before, 855 number. And if today you want a relationship with Jesus, just simply text the word Jesus, the name that is above every name, text that name Jesus. And I promise you, one of our friends will follow up with you. We'd love to wrap our arms around you and help you to take your next step in your journey of faith. How many thank God that he is risen? He is risen indeed. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.